Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 10 of our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 10th of April. And Leon, what's on the menu for this week? Well, Gary, we've got a Fascinating interview with a guy called Jonathan Michaels. He's a US lawyer and he is running a class action case against Uber. And uh, he's going to be talking to us all about Uber's responsibilities, lack of governance and their all their issues. And it's going to be fantastic. It's one of those classic American class actions, isn't it? It's it's really fascinating. They're, they're not saying that Uber's a, a bad thing. They're just saying it doesn't do what it promises to do. That's right, and uh, and it has consequences right around the world, including Australia. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis all about the collapse in the iron ore price and the RBA's decision, which surprised all the economists. Yeah, they held the uh, the interest rate level. It's pretty low, of course. I don't know how much further they can go, but the iron ore is a real worry. It got down on sort of $47. and Under 47 Gary? Yeah, under 47 yeah, where is it now? It's close on forty-eight or something, isn't it? It's recovered a bit, but it's heavy. It's still heading down. It's not good. And yet, Gina Reinhart, she's uh, opening up uh, exports from Roy Hill. And but what's interesting about that is that she's not looking at China. She's looking at Taiwan and Japan and some other markets, isn't she? And BHP Billiton and uh, Rio are still ramping up production. So, go figure. Anyway. Anyway, let's first have a chat with Jonathan Michaels. Okay. Jonathan Michaels, you have a thriving practice in automotive law in the US. Now, you have major concerns about Uber. Tell us about it. Well, I do have major concerns about Uber. Um, as as you know, uh, Uber has been wildly popular, and it's uh, it's really gained a lot of steam. And we have concerns with the safety of the services that Uber is providing to the general public. What, lack of insurance and that sort of thing? Well, you know, the issues are, are really uh, several. They're, um, they're representing that they've got industry-leading background checks for their drivers, when in fact the background checks that they perform are very uh, mediocre at best. Uh, they state that they've got uh, industry-leading insurance for their drivers which in fact is not true. Um, there's virtually zero training for their drivers. And so, you know, a consumer is effectively getting into the backseat of a stranger's car, uh, and that person who's driving them around has very little training on how to handle the situation. How did we get to this situation? Well, you know, it's, it's actually very interesting because Uber has only been around for about the last four or five years. I think what's led to its popularity is just its convenience. You know, it's, it's incredibly convenient to use it. Um, and, you know, it's led to this, uh, this rush to people trying to use the service, um, and it's grown without really considering the safety implications of a company of that magnitude. I was talking to uh, an executive at Accenture, which is a big IT company, yesterday, and he was forecasting that services such as Uber and not only transportation but other services such as this using what you might call casual contractors was going to increase simply because of the way people use mobile technology. What's your view on that? I think it's probably true. Uh, I think the sharing economy is really uh, coming on strong. I think it's the mobile technology, as you've indicated, has brought people together and allowed people to do things that they otherwise uh, or previously had not been able to do. 
the question that we have is that, you know, it, it raises all sorts of safety concerns uh, when you're putting people together that, you know, either might not have the proper training or might not have a sense of ethics or have questionable backgrounds. You know, it's a recipe for disaster. Now, I mean, this has major implications legally. I mean, it's uh, not inconceivable to see Uber getting taken to court at some stage. You know, we're taking Uber to court right now. We have filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of all citizens of the United States who have Uber accounts. And uh, we expect this to be a very well-vetted lawsuit about the court system here in the United States. And there's a lot of people that are, that are really getting hurt uh, by, by Uber services. Um, and the, the issue that we have is we do not want to see, I want to underscore this, we do not want to see Uber go away. I, I think it's a, a phenomenal service. We want to see it made safe. And the issue that we have is that Uber is representing its services as something that it's not. It's claiming that it has industry-leading background checks when, in fact, the drivers uh, have you know, very marginal background checks. So it's really a misrepresentation to the consuming public that we have an issue with. So at what stage is this class action going at? We actually just filed the class action lawsuit last month. And we received this week, we received a notice from the court that there is a status conference on April 15th, which is really the first gathering of all the attorneys. Uh, Uber has uh, already contacted us uh, since the filing of the lawsuit and made the introductions uh, to its counsel. So uh, we expect that at the April 15th status conference, which is in San Francisco, California, uh, that we'll be getting some dates for uh, proceeding with the case. So the outcome, if it's successful from your point of view, what would be your aim in, in the outcome of the, of the class action? There's really two goals. One is there's a, there's a refund that's due to all the consumers who have used Uber services because they paid for a service that was not as represented. But the overarching goal is to have Uber stop misrepresenting the nature of its services to the consuming public. And again, we just want them to change their ways. We want them to have industry-leading background checks. We want them to have best-in-class insurance. We want all of the things that it's claiming. The problem is that it just doesn't have it. So we either want them to stop making the misrepresentations or better change their services so that they're actually correct because we think Uber is a tremendous service that has a lot of potential. It just needs to actually perform. This has global implications too, doesn't it? Because Uber is a global company and uh, Uber's got into a lot of trouble around the world in places like India, for example, where one of the drivers sexually assaulted a passenger. And, uh, you know, you've, we've had similar allegations in Australia. How will this affect Uber globally? You know, I, I think we really hit Uber right in its backyard. Uh, the company is a San Francisco-based company, which is where we filed our, our class action lawsuit. Uh, and I think a lot of the other countries uh, are going to be looking to what happens here in the United States to determine how to respond to Uber. I mean, let's face it, a lot of these, uh, these governments, you know, they've never seen a company like Uber before. They don't know how to respond to it. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot of other countries – starting to ban Uber. You know, we've seen that in France. We've seen it in Germany. Uh, we've seen it in parts of India. And I think that you're going to have uh, further countries continue to ban Uber uh, throughout the world. This really also raises questions about the governance of Uber, doesn't it? The way the company is run. That the fact that it's, it presents itself as one thing when it's something else altogether. It, it does. Uh, it, it presents, in my view, uh, significant issues of governance as to how the company is run. And you know, the advertising it puts out. Um, and these are not, you know, let's, let's be clear. These are not modest claims that the company is making. These are emphatic claims that are that it is using to sell the company to consumers. 
Um, it's not saying, you know, we have uh, marginal background checks where we, you know, kind of look a little bit at the driver's history. They're saying we've got the best, you know, industry checks essentially in the world, industry-leading industry checks, or background checks, rather. And, you know, those are complete misrepresentations. Of- Jonathan, uh, it also seems, I have a, and use Uber in San Francisco, I've had an account with them for two, three years. It seems to me that as it stands, and certainly in San Francisco, it's preferable for me to use Uber because the cab service, the conventional cab service, doesn't actually offer the kind of connection that I can get with Uber. So maybe the market is going to decide in the end. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, it's uh, Uber's been around for just a couple of short years, and it already has a valuation of $41 billion. Uh, I mean, certainly that speaks volumes as to what the company is capable of and, and the convenience. You know, the reason that you would prefer to use Uber as, to, as opposed to a cab is that it's so easy for you or any any other consumer to simply click on an app on your phone and have a car show up in three minutes as opposed to you know, actually telephoning a cab company or hailing a cab. And so Uber's not going to be going away or the, the, the industry is not going to be going away. Um, and as far as letting the market decide, I agree. And part of the market corrections are events like this class action, which help keep companies like Uber in line when they're making misrepresentations of fact to the public. With this class action, what sort of payout would Uber be looking at? Well, you know, we don't know uh, at this stage how many Uber users there are in the United States. It's one of the things that we're going to find out in the lawsuit. Um, But we believe that every consumer who has used Uber um, has been subjected to these misrepresentations of fact, and they've paid for a service that they've not actually received. It's what we in California call um, a restitution, that we need to have the funds that they paid returned to them. So we could be talking about something that's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, conceivably in the billions of dollars. Which would uh, gain the attention of Uber finally, wouldn't it? Well, you would hope. Uh, and, and that's one of the benefits of, of these class action lawsuits. It's you know, part of it is, yes, you know, there needs to be restitution to the consumers, but an equal part or perhaps a larger part is actually gaining the attention of the company that's the wrongdoer. Um, you know, unfortunately, one of the only ways you can really get the attention of a company is to hit them where it hurts, and that's in the pocketbook. And so that's one of one of the aspects of it is uh, the restitution to the consumers. How, when do you expect this case will be resolved? You know, uh, class actions like this, can, can frequently take a couple of years. Um, I don't think that the case will be resolved this year. I think, you know, perhaps as early as next year. Um, but it could go on for a couple of years after that. You know, it's, it's really too early to tell how long it'll take to resolve. Well, we'll be watching with fascination, Jonathan. Yeah, we, we, we're looking forward to it. We're very excited about this. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, Leon, it's it's fascinating. I mean, the part of me says, well, gee whiz, this is America all over. And the other part is, uh, yeah, okay, go for it. It's uh, if uh, Jonathan can make his case. Well, I think I think it's it's I think it's a fascinating case, and I think it will have consequences right around the world if they get it up. But let's talk to Stephen Coolis now about the iron ore price and the RBA's decision. Okay. Stephen Kakoulis, the iron ore price is now heading down towards $46 and uh, could go a lot lower. What's your view of it? Look, I think the iron ore price freefall, if we can call it, that's a combination of a couple of things. The, the demand has been moderating. Lots of talk about steel production falling uh, in China in particular over the next couple of years. There's huge stockpiles in China. 
And uh, a lot of the iron ore producers are still churning this stuff out, um, even though some of them are now doing it uh, below their cost of production or they're receiving less than their cost of production. So you know, all of these factors are coming into play. It is a, an issue. It is a problem for all but the very, very low-cost producers, and it is a problem for the Australian economy. It is a jolt to our national income. It hurts the federal budget in terms of company tax receipts and national income. So uh, the question is, how far does it go? Do we do we um, have a, an even bigger fall in uh, iron ore prices in the next few months, or do we find a bottom? And what we're seeing now is a bit of a bit of a market overshoot. Well, the uh, when the federal budget uh, came out, it was around ninety dollars, and uh, MIFO had it around about sixty dollars. It's now heading at forty six dollars and dropping. Uh, where does that leave the federal budget? Yeah, look, it's a big hole in the budget from that source. Now, curiously, this is the this is the interesting thing that sort of is sometimes overlooked right now. We've had some okay economic news domestically, even just recently. The retail sales numbers were a touch better than expected. House building is pretty strong. Yeah, maybe the government's collecting a bit of revenue from those on GST, and even the employment numbers were just a touch better. You know, I don't want to overstate any of these sort of positive signals because the economy's still sluggish, but. You know, whether we just hold GDP at 2.5% rather than dip to 2% in the next 12 months is a big question. And if consumers are spending a bit more, the building side of the economy is a bit stronger, then maybe, just maybe, the RBA is getting part of its wish anyway that this fall in iron or the fall in mining capital expenditure, which is, which is a given, uh, will be offset to some extent elsewhere. And the budget, as a result, will not be quite as dreadful as it would appear at face value if we just plug in this uh, incredibly low iron ore price. Uh, right, right. But of course, meantime, it's going to put a whole lot of companies in big trouble like Atlas and uh, Fortescue. Indeed, those companies are in big trouble. They're clearly just going to be trying to keep their heads above water. Well, Atlas is in huge trouble. Uh, Fortescue in pretty big trouble. Their strategy, as far as I can work out anyway, would just be to ride this out, if, if at all possible. If they can get through this next period of time, and then hopefully, hopefully from their perspective, the iron ore price can kick back up into the 50s and then the 60s, where it was only a few months ago. So it's not as if we're you know, hoping for an iron ore price that's really way out there, then they'll be back okay again. But in the meantime, it's just a really nerve-wracking experience. And you know, you wonder the extent to which their competitors are really wanting to squeeze them out by pushing the price lower. It's a, it's a really interesting time. But of course, the best news would be if we saw the Chinese economy uh, lifting back. But at the moment, that looks problematic with the, the concerns they've got in their housing market. Well, the uh, Chinese economy is pegged for growth at 7% and uh, there are some doubts of them even achieving that. Do you see iron ore coming back at all over the next two years? Look, uh, there's some chance, you know, if we, what we've just been discussing, and we do see a, a scaling back in output, not only from the smaller, the marginal cost producers, but even some of the bigger producers, they're not going to be wanting to produce iron ore at, you know, a trivial level of profit. Uh, and if demand just weakens some more, then of course we do get a lower supply coming through at some stage. Now, said so that the driver will be Chinese economic growth, as you correctly touched on. So if we do see some evidence that the Chinese relaxation of policy there, does arrest their period of weakness or soft growth, relatively speaking, then there is a chance that the iron ore price can kick up. Look, it'll be, it'll be foolhardy to say we're going to be rocketing back to 60 and $70 a tonne anytime soon. But 
History's told me anyway that markets, including for commodities, can and often do overshoot. They stay down for a period of time. Then all of a sudden, a little bit of good news comes along. There's a few uh, fundamentals like lower supply and uh, an increase in demand. And all of a sudden, the markets do uh, rebound a little bit. Now, it's premature to be saying that. We're catching a falling knife with the prices still, you know, as we speak, in free fall. But there comes a point where you know, prices just become too low and that the average cost of production levels are exceeded and therefore you get some rebound occurring. Maybe that's a question that we'll discuss in a couple of months' time. Now, despite the iron ore price, despite all the other problems with the economy, the RBA, though, decided to keep interest rates on hold uh, and soaring property prices was cited as a reason why. Now, what's your estimate of this? Yeah, look, I, I thought they should have cut. You know, the economy, as we've just been discussing, is not only uh, relatively soft in terms of the, the hard numbers that we've got, but the outlook, the numbers that we haven't yet got for the economy for the months of April, May and June, will be negatively impacted by uh, this iron ore issue we've just been discussing. So you would have thought that the risk-reward for them in trimming 25 basis points, maybe putting a bit of a floor under the Aussie dollar, we saw the Aussie dollar jump when they did nothing, so presumably it would have fallen had they done something in terms of a rate cut. That would have helped the iron ore producers a bit. It would have helped our other exporters, tourism, education, uh, and these other services exports. So, uh, And it also would have freed up some cash flow for the household sector, for the business sector. So, again, the risk-reward of doing something seemed low, but... Clearly, they're a little annoyed about how stubbornly strong Sydney house prices are in particular. Their efforts to have some macro prudential leaning on the banks to restrict their lending on uh, on investment properties in particular has failed. You know, house prices in Sydney are still going up 13 14% year on year, so they're still booming. Uh, so they're probably saying, well, we can wait another month or two or three uh, before we go if we need to. And... It's Sydney property prices overwhelming the need for perhaps lower rates in the rest of the economy. So uh, do you see the RBA cutting rates in May? Everyone seems to be factoring that in as, a, as an inevitability. Well, if they should have done it yesterday, they still should do it in May, unless there's some, you know, some staggeringly strong data that comes out unexpectedly. Now, uh, one issue that is important for the RBA will be the Consumer Price Index, which comes out in a couple of weeks' time. I think it's the 23rd of April, if memory serves me correct. So in about a couple of weeks, we'll have the March quarter CPI. Critically important for the RBA as an inflation-targeting central bank. I guess if that number is as low as we're currently forecasting, and that is for the underlying inflation rate to be about 2.2%, then they've got the green light to cut. There's no inflation pressures. The risk would be, I guess, if we get a little bit of an upside surprise on inflation. Now, remember that this lower dollar that we've seen in the last six months is filtering through into some consumer good prices. A lot of things like cars and uh, those sorts of things are a little bit more expensive now than they were just because of the currency. So, yeah, they're, they're running a bit of a risk that you know, if, we, if we get a little bit of an upside surprise on inflation, then they can't go. So, But in terms of growth, in terms of the labour market, the case for a cut still there. It was there yesterday. It still is there today. I think they'll go, but you know, we, we just need to see them change their rhetoric and perhaps uh, shore up their views about what's happening um, you know, in, in the iron ore markets, in the global economy and these sorts of things before we can be sure that they'll pull the trigger. Do you see uh, one or more rate cuts this year? Look, we're obviously getting close to the end of the cycle. You know, I touched on before that we've seen some slightly better retail sales numbers and we've seen a strong lift in uh, house building, which is good news for GDP, for the economy and the like. 
Yeah, we are getting close to the bottom of the cycle. The world economy, you know, we focused on the softness in China, but there's some encouraging signs out of the Eurozone, albeit from a, from a dreadfully um, pessimistic view three to six months ago. But uh, we are seeing the German economy doing particularly well. But even in Italy, Spain, uh, France, there's been some upside surprises on a, on a number of their data points in the last uh, month or so. Again, from a very poor position, Don't, I'm not saying Europe's fixed all its ills, it hasn't. But maybe this uh, incredibly stimulatory policy in the Eurozone is starting to have effect. The Euro is very weak as a currency. That's giving the exporters a bit of a bit of a kickstart. So you add up a slightly better position for the Eurozone economy. The US is still doing okay. Not as strong as it could be, but still doing okay. Uh, throw in India, which is a lovely surprise on the upside in terms of growth. And yeah, maybe as the RBA... You know, crunches its forecast for world GDP, it's getting a number that's not too bad. Again, could be stronger, but not too bad. And that will just allow them to cut one more time, but then take a very long time out and see how the you know, 2% cash rate, for example, will be impacting with their macro prudential uh, efforts to cool the housing market in Sydney start to work. Uh, and of course, then what happens in the world economy? So we're getting really close to the bottom of the cycle. I think they'll stop at 2.0%. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit gloomy, isn't it? Well, yes, but I was looking at the futures market and uh, everyone is pricing in a 100% likelihood that the RBA will cut interest rates in May. So let's watch that space, Gary. What's it going to do to the housing market, though? I mean, just push people even further, won't it? Well, it'll uh, encourage the housing market and the Sydney Sydney property market in particular is uh, is going through the roof. So let's watch that space, Gary. Okay, well, now, Leon, the news, what's on? Well, Gary, uh, first of all, to the US, the world's biggest economy, and employers there sharply slowed their hiring in March, the weakest pace in more than a year, and that's the latest sign that the economy stumbled during the first quarter, hampered at least in part by the harsh winter weather. And non-farm payrolls rose by seasonally adjusted 126,000 jobs in March. Now, that's a small, that's the smallest gain since December 2013, and the average monthly gain in the first quarter was 197,000. Don't forget, this time it was 126,000. So it's, and even that was down from an average of 325 4,000 in the last three months of 2014. So they're now down to 126,000. They're running at an average of 324,000 in the last three months of 2014. Now, the unemployment rate in the US is still expected to stay at 5.5%, but wages are rising at a moderate rate. And that is going to be a quite a problem in the US. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's not limited only to the US, though, is it? I mean, it's, it's kind of in the West everywhere, including Australia. Absolutely. Now, the other, the other big issue, the other big issue is what's happening in Greece. And it looks like Greece is going to repay a loan tranche of the IMF in time on April the 9th. Uh, and that has quelled fears of a default. Uh, now the issue is that Greece is fast running out of cash. Uh, and they're saying Greece is going to run out of money by April the 20th, Gary, and uh, the Eurozone International Monetary Fund lenders have frozen bailout out until the new leftist-led government reaches agreement on this package of reforms, but in a surprise move, a defiant Greek leader, Alexis Tsipras, has gone to Moscow for talks with Vladimir Putin, and that's ratcheted up the pressure on the Western creditors of keeping debt-stricken Greece afloat. Isn't that fascinating, Gary? Oh, absolutely fascinating. That 
Tsipras is uh, looking very much like a master politician. He is absolutely brilliant. Now, they're going to sign an array of chords, including a three-year plan to strengthen ties economically and commercially. And the uh, discount on gas deliveries is likely to be top of the agenda because cash-strapped Greece imports about 57% of its gas supplies from Russia. And Russia, Ru- Moscow will also be willing to give Greece loans, just as it done with Cyprus, on the condition that it has access to certain assets in Greece. Now, as we know, the creditors at the EU, European Central Bank and International Monetary Fund want a fire sale of Greek state properties ranging from airports to ports to help balance the books in Athens. And what Russia wants is Greece's transport sectors and the ports of Piraeus and Thessaloniki. <laughs> so yeah. this is going to be absolutely so Greece could get the money from Russia. And that's going to be, that's going to concern all the Western diplomats because they're going to say Putin's exploiting Athens to further Russia's ambition of dismembering Europe. <laughs> and Putin's just hard enough to sort of do that or try to. That's right. So it's a fascinating story, Gary. Yeah, it is. Anyway, latest analysis from the International Monetary Fund says economies around the world can't grow as fast as they used to because of the ageing population, less investment, and the limits of technology. They say advanced economies will expand only at a rate of 1.6% over the next five years. That's compared to 2.25% pre-crisis. And they're saying uh, even if capital investment recovers, ageing populations will act as a long-term growth on a drag on growth. Well, yeah, but I mean, the same sort of thing going on in China, isn't it? I mean, they're down, what, below, probably in reality, about six and a half, maybe even lower, and they've got an aging population too. Well, the issue in China is I think they're going to get, uh, they're going to get old before they get rich over there. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, true. Now, the activity in the Australian services sector has slowed to a near contractionary territory. As in March, as concerns over local economic conditions continue to fester, the Australian Industry Group Performance of Manufacturing Index fell 1.5 points to 50.2. Uh, and in keeping with rising unemployment, the ANZ Job Ad series fell 1.4% in March for the first time after nine months uh, of rises. And job ads have now increased for 17 consecutive months, but it's been at a slower pace, so that's in keeping with the rising unemployment. And still worries about household finances and job security have driven consumer confidence to its lowest level in almost eight months, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index. It's fallen 2.3% and it's been sliding since the beginning of 2015. So that's a bit of a worry, Gary. It is indeed, yeah, and confidence is terribly important in Australia at the moment. I mean, there's money around there, but it's not being invested. Well, the uh, the big issue too is that, uh, however, retail sales actually surprised everyone. They grew 0.7% in February as consumers opened their wallets to spend on groceries, electronic goods and furniture. Uh, seasonally adjusted month-on-month growth was well above expectations, which were running at 0.4%. And the biggest contributor to the February rise was household goods retailing, which combined 1.8% month-on-month according to the ABS, and that category includes electronics, furniture, housewares, and do-it-yourself renovations and hardware. And sales of groceries and other foodstuffs and alcohol also poses a robust increase of up to 1.2%. Yeah, drinking our way to prosperity. Yeah. Now, the big problem at the moment, though, is the iron ore price, as we as we talked about with Stephen Coolis, Gary. Uh, Austra- and uh, according to the former iron ore president of BHP Billiton, Ian Ashby, he says Australian iron ore miners have to accept the long-term 
the long-held forecast for China's steel growth are likely to be too optimistic. He reckons the slowdown in China hasn't been fully appreciated. Now, BHP and Rio are predicting that China's steel industry will peak at 1 billion tonnes. But uh, Ashby's view echoes the thoughts of China Iron and Steel Association Deputy Secretary Li Xinjiang, who in September warned that steel production in China will not reach 1 billion tonnes. And Gary, as iron ore fell to a decade low below $47 a tonne following the Easter weekend, prominent economist Ross Garneau is predicting that Chinese steel production has peaked. He says it's going to fall by more than 25% over the next decade and a half. Yeah, and for us that's serious because... Yeah, a huge amount of our economy dependent on sales of ore to China. That's right. Now, don't forget, Garno is the economist who correctly predicted China's declining appetite for coal more than three years ago when other, others were continuing, were forecasting strong demand. And, um, Garno's view puts him at odds with Rio Tinto, BHP and the official government forecast of the Department of Industry, which predicts production rebound to 930 million tonnes in five years. And the bottom line is the price of steel-making commodities down 63% since the time of the start of last year, and that's threatening the profitability of Fortescue, Australia's third biggest iron ore miner. Yep. And it's undermining the federal budget too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, BHP and Rio probably are still okay, but uh, they reckon BHP could, could be profitable. It's down around the, the high $20, but it's still a bit of a worry. Well, uh Junior Pilbara iron ore miner Atlas Iron could be the first victim of the falling iron ore price. It's put its stock in voluntary trading suspension. It's reviewing its finances, considering asset sales following the iron ore slump. And Atlas Iron says it's made some progress in reducing production, but the extent and pace in the plunge in the iron ore price has forced it to undertake a comprehensive review. Now, since Atlas released its half-yearly result in late February, the price of iron ore has fallen 24% and well below its 2011 peak of nearly $200 a tonne. And as a result, uh, ratings agency Standard Pauses downgraded Atlas Iron's corporate credit and secured uh, debt ratings to triple C from B-. And all the fund managers are saying more junior miners could follow Atlas. Yep, that's right, because their production costs are above where, what the sale price is. That's right. Now, the big surprise of the week, Gary, was uh, that despite the falling iron ore price and jobs figures, the RBA held the official cash rate at its record low of 2.25%. Now, financial markets were pricing in a 60 to 70% chance of an April rate cut on Tuesday morning and a 100% chance of it being across the board in the bond, priced into the bond market by May. And But the bottom line is that low interest rates have fueled concerns of a burgeoning bubble in Sydney property prices because cheap credit is encouraging speculation in an already heated market. And also, uh, ASIC is investigating a spike in the Aussie dollar just before the RBA announces April interest rate decision. And the Aussie rose from 75.97 to 76.07 in the just minutes before the RBA's announcement at 2.30 on Tuesday. And that's not the first time that sort of thing's happened. No, 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 no. And it's just so many economists had expected a rate cut and that would have made the Aussie dollar less attractive to investors. So the question has to be asked, why was there a rise in the Aussie dollar? Who knew what? Now, the other big story, of course, is that Australia is going to face competition from Ukraine and Turkey as a wheat supply to Asia. Uh, according to forecasts, Australia holds a dominant share in Asia's wheat flour sector. China wants more coarse grains. 
And uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development forecasted by 2032, thirds of the global middle class, or 3.3 billion people will be in Asia, up from 1.8 billion now. And they're saying the growing demand for wheat-based foods will eventually outstrip Australia's production capacity. And this, in turn, will lead to the growth in other supply sources, primarily around the Black Sea region. Mm, that's really interesting. We've got challenges all around, haven't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And uh, next week we've got uh, an interview with... Uh, Andrew Zetlin from Moneyball Economics in the US. Uh, he's got a fascinating analysis of how figure, various figures like uh, escort services are an indicator of economic growth. <laughs> fascinating interview. Absolutely, yeah. What the guys are spending. And he's been looking at Las Vegas and what goes on there. That's right. So it'll be fascinating to talk to him. In the meantime, uh, that's it for us. So if you want to uh, tune in to Talking Business, you can find us at Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.